listening to Have the Conversation Podcast, a podcast centered around mental health, wellness, and everything in between. I'm Calla. And I'm Leanne. We're sitting down with everyday people to talk about life and the lessons they've learned, all in an effort to connect and stay encouraged. Before we jump into the episode, we wanted to remind you that we're not doctors. We're people who love people and we value their experience. This episode is Sarah Jean Brown's experience, and it's honest, raw, and beautiful. Sarah opened up about the psychosis that led the way to her bipolar diagnosis and her two stints in the psychiatric ward in long-term structured residence. Her experiences now allow her to chase her purpose and passions of writing and advocating for mental health. Sarah now spends her time speaking and writing with her work being published in Forbes, Lifehack, Tiny Buddha, Thrive Global, and Elephant Journal, just to name a few. You can get connected with Sarah by visiting htcpod.com slash episodes for more. So we were talking and I was like, okay, where are we going to begin this thing? And then I thought you're a speaker, you're an activist, and you're a self-help writer. Clearly you've had a ton of experiences, (laughs) big experiences. (laughs) So where does your story start? So basically I am a self-help writer for Forbes and I'm a mental health advocate as someone who has bipolar disorder. And my main goal is now to share my story and also, you know, the situations that I had in the mental health system were not good. So I kind of want to give a light to those situations as well and share that stigma really held me back from getting the help that I needed and to kind of end shame and sharing our stories. Oh, that's so beautiful. You're in the right spot. (laughs) (laughs) So when did you realize that how you think is different enough to, to seek, you know, treatment or therapy for it? Yeah. So it started in high school. I had bouts of depression and it was before we knew that I was bipolar and they put me on Wellbutrin. And unfortunately I had hallucinations, a bad reaction from it. So I stayed away from medication therapy for years and years and years. And I was very high functioning all my life. You could call that manic as well, because I was a high achiever, a perfectionist. I was always on top of stuff. And then one night, I was completely manic. I started hallucinating on my own and I started to feel like everybody was out to get me. Like I was paranoid, delusional. And I was, you know, I just quit my job working with kids with autism. So luckily nobody got to witness this. So it kind of worked out in that way. But my mom, you know, she was really afraid for me and I lived with her at the time. And she basically had me 302'd for my own safety because she didn't know what it meant or what I was saying or what I was doing. And I went to the psych board they were the ones who told me that I had bipolar disorder and the psychosis went away once they got me on uh, good meds. But initially I was totally in in psychosis. And then I just became um, a little bit delusional thinking that people were out to get me, thinking that the police working with me, that everybody was wired and listened to my conversations. Like it was crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, That's whenever I really had a bipolar breakdown. My whole life I was pretty stable until then. Once I got onto the right meds, I was fine and unstable. It did take some trial and errors to find the right meds and to find the right help because I actually was hospitalized twice in my life because I couldn't find the right help. And uh, that made me really look into within for my own answers and try to help other people go through the same situations. Wow. So that's a lot. I'm going to take a deep breath for a second. I know. I need to collect myself for sure. I, I feel so much of that. When you're we're going through the psychosis, do you remember what that looked like for other people or or what what did um, those days look like? 
Yeah. So basically it started with insomnia. So I couldn't sleep. I was totally wired. It was like I had a ton of caffeine. I went days without sleeping. That was, that was uh, red flag number one that something was happening. Then I started to just see things that weren't there. Like I would see like a hologram of faces like above somebody's like head. I'd be like, what is that? Is that a projector? Like I would think that it was like a projector showing like these faces on the wall and it was and they would witness me saying that and they were like okay something is not right mm-hmm. um I was like you know I'm going to call the police if you try to hurt me I, I thought that people were going to kill me it was really scary so it made them scared but it worked in my favor that they were scared because that's what got me the help that I needed it wasn't just a normal like hey mania I'm really active and really energetic it was it was total psychosis and like I said my whole life I've been stable up until I first experienced that so nobody in my life knew what was happening and what that meant because I'd never been diagnosed before so the medicine that they put you on for the psychosis what is that bipolar medication yeah yeah so it's um bipolar one disorder with psychotic features So basically, once I was on these meds, the psychosis went away, and then I just had to get the delusions kind of out of my system for a little bit. It took like a couple months for me initially to become stable. And then you haven't had any sort of like episodes like that since being on medication? Um, I was, I was, I went to the psych ward for a month and then I went to a long-term structured residence for about five months because I wasn't well yet. And I was there a a little bit longer than I needed to be, but they really have to like watch you whenever you get sick. They don't let you just go. So I was well most of the time. And then I was getting like very lethargic. I was zombie-like and I was like, something is wrong with my meds. Like I'm not happy. Once I left, I went to this psychiatrist who he just lowered me completely almost off of my meds to see if that would help the lethargicness. And unfortunately, that didn't do anything but made me sick again. So I relapsed, went right back to the psych ward, right back to the process again. But luckily, it found me the right meds and the right help. The only thing that happened was really bad side effects where I had to keep trying med to med to med. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a really bad swallowing issue, and, and that was horrible for about eight months. So I had a really hard time finding the right meds and the right help. Um, Some very sketchy people out there, we'll put it that way. Well, and that's what I wanted to ask you. So I've heard some pretty like terrifying things about psych wards and you know, you see movies and it's- I was gonna say, I'm picturing Girl Interrupted like all over (laughs) the place. (laughs) What, What was your experience like in the psych ward? My experience was shock. I was totally overwhelmed. They don't tell you what's happening. They don't tell like, oh, hey, you're in a psych ward. You're really sick. They don't sit you down. They, you just kind of are put into a room with other people and like they check in with you. They take notes about you. But initially you have no idea what's going on, which I think is really bad. Um, yeah. I think that the boredom there breaks people. And that's something that I want to speak out about because you're already mentally ill. And on top of that, you're just existing. You're not living. Uh, there's no soul in those places because they don't give you emotional support or comfort or kindness. It's all just technical. Like, okay, here's a pill that you need. And here's what we need to do for your medication. And that's all that the focus is. It's not the focus on the human being. Whenever I was in there, I really wanted to save people. I've been like that my whole life where I just really want to help people. And I was put into like this powerless, helpless position where not only could I not help myself, but listening to the people around me, they were all in psychosis. I couldn't reach them, but I knew that they deserved humanity and help more than they were getting. 
So I really wanted to make a difference someday in talking about the experience because I realized that it was so devoid of just kindness of just like, hey, this is what's going on. You're okay. You're not a bad person for being mentally ill. And there was none of that. And I think that's really needs to change. A hundred percent. I feel like that would make, like you said, you were in there by yourself and everyone around you has experienced psychosis. Like, how are you expected to heal in an environment like that? Yeah, like you're all put together. You all scare each other. You, you can't connect. Nobody has boundaries. A lot of them try to like, you know, say like, oh, can I get your number so I can get money from you later? Like there are some people who are like, um, like sociopaths, really. Like there was yeah. people in there. And you had no idea how to handle yourself or like to protect yourself because they really should tell you like, hey, you know, this person, you know, don't give them anything. Don't tell them your number. Everybody was giving each other their phone numbers and it was really Mm -hmm. scary. So there's no boundaries between the patients. So I don't believe that you should really just put everybody in a room together and expect them to survive. I think that's kind of inhumane. Um, but I think that it can work if it was treated, if people were treated like human beings and like, hey, we'll give you the emotional support. Do not turn to your other patients for emotional support. If that were taken care of, then that wouldn't be happening. Yeah, because if there's a void, you're going to look for so it true. wherever you can. Yeah, yeah exactly. You're in such a fragile state, you know? Yeah. yeah. You wouldn't do that with babies on like a different wing of the hospital and just right, like, figure right. it out, you know, really. Yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. You said the boredom breaks people. What was a day like there for you? So basically they do have board games, but like I said, it's very hard to connect with the other patients. If they're in psychosis, they can't play board games with you. And you do sometimes wake up from the psychosis initially. Um, Cause I was in the psych board for only a month. And then I went to the LTSR that's a long-term structured residence where they had board games there too, but I could not connect with the other people there. Unfortunately, everybody was in their own headspace or very sick. Um, so there's nothing to do. And on top of that, I did find somebody to play the board games with, but it all, I did it all in like a week. I was there for five months and I had nothing to do. They have outdated books there. I brought my own books from home. Um, I could not fill the hours. And unfortunately, unless you had a smartphone, you couldn't, buy, you couldn't get by. Like the psych ward made sure that you couldn't get by because they didn't want you to stay there, which is a good thing. You don't want to be in the psych ward to begin with, but it almost like punishes you. And it's kind of not right that they punish you so harshly and that you can't have anything to do. Um, they do have groups during the day. So they have like little lectures. Sometimes you have art, but it's very like luxury. It's not like a group discussion, like um, an AA meeting would be where you really share your stories and where you're coming from. It's very much like, here's what you need to do. Take your pills, uh, make sure that you know your coping skills, you know, find your red flags, uh, come up with a plan. It was all very technical. And I think that's what makes it harder is you really want to express yourself in those places like, hey, this is what I'm going through. And they don't really give you that emotional support to do that. God, that's so that's so crazy how institutions like that get away with taking the humanity out of things like yeah. I, I I don't know if you've seen this movie Sarah I know Callie you could you and Simon couldn't watch it it was called it's on Netflix I think it's called I care a lot I've never seen it it's about this woman who essentially finds these vulnerable older people and um, gets, you know, she was in cahoots with the doctor and they get the doctor to say that they can't take care of themselves. So they need a state appointed caretaker. Mm -hmm. And 
So then they take them out of their homes and they put them in these long-term, like not a hospice, but you know, a, a care center for, for older adults. You, you hear so many scary stories about vulnerable people getting taken advantage of. And it's, it's just, it's sad that that's a, such a common theme. Yeah, you know? it is. I feel like too, there was a lot of victim blaming. So for me, I've had some hardships like abuse and stuff in my life. And whenever I told them that I was the common denominator in all those situations, one of the nurses said to me, well, everything's always your fault then, isn't it? And basically they said that that was me blaming everybody else except for myself, that it wasn't really their fault. It was my fault for getting into those situations. And there's no protection against that kind of mentality in those places because basically nurses can say whatever they want to you and there's no repercussions. Nobody's really watching them or training them to be emotionally supportive. Sometimes they say really cool things to you which hurt on top of everything. Yeah, it just fans that flame for why you're yeah, probably does. there anyways. So I know that you said that you noticed that you were able to kind of get down to one of the roots or, or the common denominator for you. And that has a lot to do with, with sitting with your thoughts and, you know, going inward. Did you have to find that as like a means of survival when you were there for five months? Is that how it fell into your lap or did you go seeking that? No, I, because I was so bored, I became so mindful. Like it's kind of crazy how I learned mindfulness the hard way. Um, Cause mm -hmm. I do teach mindfulness in general in therapy, but to really have to use it because you're so bored, there's nothing to do to become so present. Um, I didn't have a smartphone in the, in the LTSR, like I said. So I really had to become so focused on the moment and I just had to relax and go with the flow. I um, talk a lot about in my writing, um, something called surrendering, which is where you just give up control, trust in the unknown and let go. So that's something that I had to adopt as my philosophy, because whenever you're in those places, you have no idea what the outcome is going to be. You have no idea how you're going to survive it, what's going to happen to your mental health. Um, you have no idea who you can trust because you're paranoid. All I had to do was just trust and look within to get through that. And I read a lot of self-help books in those places. A lot of them didn't really help me. They're all very preachy and they're all about, oh, positive thinking, which actually translates into toxic positivity or you can manifest everything that happens to you. And I was like, no way, I did not manifest this happening to me. I was so such a happy, good person. I was always positive that this isn't my fault. Mental illness is not my doing. So there's a lot of really bad ideas out there. And so I had to really turn to my own philosophy of surrendering and mindfulness to get through it. Did you have like a specific moment where you were sitting there and you realized like, oh my gosh, this is the mindset that I need to be in to survive or, or was it just like, after you got out, you were like, Oh, I learned this new skill. Yeah. Well, you know, there was two choices. You could either be out into the hallway or the dining room interacting with other people. And like I said, everybody was in their own psychosis in a world. It was very hard to connect with anybody. It was kind of unhealthy. So I was in my room a lot, you know, I was trying to read, I was trying to write, and I basically thought, okay, if, I, if somebody else is in my position, what would I tell them, like a best friend? And I tried to seek self-compassion. So through self-compassion, I told myself, okay, I'm okay. I am not bad because I'm experiencing bad feelings. This is not my fault. And from that point on, the self-compassion, I started to use mindfulness to sit with my emotions 
So basically, if I was struggling with being there, I would just sit with it. And I was just like, let it come up and comfort myself. And that mindfulness was all about self-love and healing. And it was something that they could not give me there. It was like my own little bubble of protection of like, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to love myself so much that this experience is not going to break me. And that's kind of what happened. Wow. So beautiful. It's, it is beautiful. And I feel like that's rare too. Cause I, I think it would be easier to go in the other direction. Like poor me, why am I here? And just, you just take the meds and, and kind of let it fester almost. Yeah. I think that's why it was probably so disheartening that the nurses would make those kind of under the table comments, because then you really don't know if you're paranoid or thinking for yourself or, you know, like that, that's yeah. such a rocky road of who do I trust? And innately, I mean, I think time and time again, it comes back to you literally have to just love yourself enough. Like you said, to like get through whatever situation you're in and that's it. Yeah, definitely. And I think that applies to really any situation. Whenever I came I out agree. of the LSR in the psych ward twice, I was like, okay, I have like this superpower now where I can surrender. I've survived it. I love myself. I healed myself. I made me um, and I didn't let them break me. I had to hide how much I suffered there from the social workers, the therapists, the doctors, because they judge you on that. They assume that you're mentally ill. If you struggle there, you have to be on top of your stability. Unfortunately, it's very structured. It's very authoritative. And basically it's kind of hard to just live that way in itself, you know, just living that way months on end in the LTSR where I couldn't really leave. And I didn't have anything to do all day. I had to hide how much that hurt me. And I cried in my room alone about it. And I couldn't go to the therapist about it. Or they would say, oh, you need, we need to up your medication. You know, you're having anxiety. They would assume it was my mental health and not the situation. So that was also another really scary thing. Oh Such God. a big stigma that, I mean, how do you, how do you navigate that, you know, and yeah, because I, I, I'm assuming with all the time that you had on your hands, you could really observe what was really going on. And your end goal is to get back to your life is, the, is what I'm assuming. Yeah. So correct me when and if I'm wrong. So you kind of see the way the game's being played a little bit. And you're like, I, I do. I have to, these, this is what I have to say and do to get out of here, to move on. Even though I know in my heart of hearts that I'm healing and this is what I need. And being alone probably all the time maybe wasn't the best thing. Is right. that accurate? Because that's yeah. what it sounds like to me. Yeah. Yeah. And within a month of being in the LTSR, I was stable again. So I had also lived this experience being disempowered while totally stable and not needing their help anymore. So it's really hard because they don't just like evaluate like, okay, you're better now. We'll let you go. You have to stay there because if you get sick, it's their fault. You know, they have to make sure you're completely well, you stay stable for five months. So on top of all of that, I was like, you know what, I'm on your, your level, you guys, I know how you think in this authoritative place. I know how to not like play you, but I know, I know therapy talk. I am a self-help writer. I can kind of navigate the system with my own intellect, but it was very hard because I was ready to leave the whole time and they couldn't let me go. So when you get out, is there like a check-in process? When did you go back the second time? Like how much time was in between? I, I have so many questions and I'm sorry yeah. if I'm jumping around. First time I was in the cycle was December, 2015. And then January, 2016, I was at the LTSR for five months. 
And then I was having a lethargicness on the first med that I was on. So my psychiatrist put me all the way down in my meds to see if that would work. And it made me sick again. So she was really, really bad. Um, and then in October, 2000, Can I stop you. Yeah. Well, go ahead. Well, sorry. When you say sick, do you mean back to like the, yeah, back to the delusions? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So basically okay. I went right back into mania, into psychosis because of the fact that I was not on, on medication. Really. I was on the lowest dose possible. And do you notice when that comes on or is that yeah. again, their interpretation or someone it's, close to you's interpretation? So they train you in the psych ward. Okay. Know your red flags, but unfortunately once you're gone, you're gone. Like once I'm delusional, I'm gone. I, I don't know that I'm delusional. So I'm like my mom and my family and my friends, they were able to step in and help me just as it started happening. Um, October, 2017 was whenever I went back to the psych ward and then I was released and the second time I went to a place called Psych Rehab, where it's basically like you go to like a group therapy thing uh, a couple of times a week just to talk about your problems. And that was kind of nice, but it didn't really do very much for me. But I was I had to do that um, and sign off that I had done that for them to completely think that I was well. So it was a very extensive process. Mm -hmm. Did that take a long time for you after going through all that to trust yourself again because I mean even if, if if you are delusional that's still your reality yeah so how would you know if like right this second if that was happening to you yeah well luckily that's why I have I have good help now like I have a really great psychiatrist really good therapist my friends and family all know what happened um, I'm open about it in general so that openness and the, the lack of shame that I experience now um, has helped me to be like, okay, these are my red flags. People know my red flags. And luckily I've, I'm more stable than I've ever been in my entire life. Like I'm really good and happy. Um, so I finally came to my own place with all that. So luckily I'm, I'm lucky. I'm one of the lucky ones. Like a lot of people there get stuck there. They go to the real um, mental health institutions where they have to stay long-term for good. And I'm lucky that I even got out of anything of that. Yeah. Wow. I guess throughout your, throughout your healing process and, and over the years that you were kind of in and out of, of the different programs, did your red flags change? No, they stayed the same. So luckily my psychosis starts with insomnia. It's almost like mm -hmm. I drink a ton of coffee. I'm so wired. I can't sleep. And then that, I think that insomnia kind of brings about the, the psychosis too, because Whenever you don't sleep, you bring on psychosis a little bit. So I think that yeah. is the number one red flag. If I know that I'm not sleeping, something is off. Once mm -hmm. that happens, then I become paranoid. Like, oh, are people after me out to get me? And then I hallucinate. So it all kind of builds up. Um, and luckily, I know it. I know the insomnia. I know the mini signs before it gets really bad that I can still grab um, help if I need to. Thank you for telling me that. I was just wanting yeah. to understand the process. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's, that's specific to you. Is that very common with anyone diagnosed with bipolar or great question? What is generally like, what is bipolar? For me, mine is atypical. So my, that means that mine, whenever I'm in manic state, I'm extremely psychotic. So unfortunately that's my experience. It's not everybody's experience. 
Uh, for being bipolar, basically the guidelines that you go through lows and lows and highs and highs. So if you're depressed and then you become manic off and on throughout the day or your life, the week or whatever, it goes in the, the ups and downs are kind of what showcases it versus just normal depression. The mania is really what creates a bipolar di diagnosis. Whenever you feel elated on top of the world, you can't stop, you are just pushing yourself too much, you are not in control of yourself. Like even before all this had happened, I was working out like all day. I was um, so on top of things. I thought that it was just because I was a type A personality, but now that I see that I crashed and burned um, with all of this happening. So basically mania is whenever you feel like you're a superhero, you even have like grandiose delusions, which means that you think that you are above everybody else. You can take on more than anybody else. And it's like your mind is racing. I think the mind racing thing is the most prominent part of it because you can't get a control of your thoughts. You are just so into whatever mode that you're in that you can't see clearly and you can't make decisions and that lack of decision making makes you impulsive God. well that's me in a nutshell that's literally i was like yeah so there's oh. very like you can everybody has that in them you know i think that mental health goes on a spectrum so bipolar doesn't look the same for like anybody you know everybody has their own red flags and symptoms everybody has their own experiences but those kind of common things happen to anybody with bipolar the ups and downs mine is just atypical where it has psychotic features yeah there's been some deep dives in my own like google search and personal therapy i guess i should <laughs> preface it that way of like i i've always identified with high functioning bipolar always I've always set, leaned in that my needles always tipped that that way um so that that's really interesting to, to hear you say that yeah and very relatable so thank you again for yeah. for yeah for giving good light to that that's that's why I asked in the beginning like how did you know your thinking was so different that you did need to seek treatment because everything that you described I have experienced in different areas of my life at different times. And so, and sometimes when you're in your own head, it's hard to know, is this normal? And then like, what is normal? Yeah. You know what I mean? But I guess, so you had your, your manic episode, but for just someone off the street, who's wondering, do I have bipolar? Um, would it be them making the impulsive decisions and, and feeling out of control? That's, that's when they would be like, maybe I should seek treatment. I would say if you are not in control of yourself, then they, no matter what diagnosis you have, you should seek treatment. So if you feel like you're impulsive, you can't control your emotions, your emotions are taking hold of you. They're controlling you. You're not controlling them. That's whenever you should seek treatment. A lot of people might have bipolar and not even need medication. They, they just manage it. And, you know, there's other types of therapies out there, you know, more like Reiki and things like that that people do to kind of manage their emotions. But for me, I really need medication because I go into full-blown psychosis, but my whole life, I was just manic. Like I had no idea. Whenever you're mentally ill, you don't know that you're mentally ill. And that's the hardest part about it because you, I fought yeah. so hard in this cycle. I was like, no, I'm stable. I'm completely fine. And they're like, no, you're not. And they had, you know, the thing that they did do was tough love where they had to kind of break me constantly like no Sarah you are not well you are not well that's the only thing that I can see that they really did right 
and reassuring me that I was supposed to be there, that I was, you know, and that that was what was happening to me. But I think for everybody that if they had bipolar, um, talking to a therapist is the number one thing that you should do to try to find that out. Like, don't diagnose yourself just based on sometimes having impulsivity, see how you are long-term and try to track your symptoms. So basically if you're impulsive one day, track it and write how, what triggered that? How did you cope with that? What did you do? If you track your symptoms and your experiences in life, like journaling, you can kind of become on top of it. Yeah, that's what it was for me. And that's when I realized drugs weren't my friend. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I kind of had the opposite, opposite uh, realization, I guess, that those things weren't, weren't helping those mindsets, so to speak. Yeah. So, so you talked about, and um, you, you write beautifully. I was reading some of your blog posts and and you're a beautiful writer. Um, You mentioned earlier toxic positivity. Yeah. Um, Will you go into that a little bit more? I I just, I think a lot of people could get a lot out of that. Yeah. So toxic positivity is basically whenever you are told, okay, you have to be positive all the time. Negative feelings are bad. So that means you have to repress them, shove them away and just be positive that your positive thoughts create your reality. So if you have a mental illness, if you're down on luck in life, it's because of your thoughts. The power of your thoughts creates everything. It's also what people who do like the law of attraction manifesting, which somewhat I do believe in a little bit, but that overdoes it. And basically it shames the person for having emotions. Emotions are not bad. They are not inherently bad at all. They are messengers. They're here to tell us that something's wrong. Um, same with like physical pain. You know, if you have a broken leg, and you don't feel the pain, you might walk on it and make it worse. Same with emotional pain. If you ignore it, you make it worse. So toxic positivity is really taking it too far with being positive all the time. It's not healthy. It's not normal. And it's more detrimental to your mental health than anything else that you could be told. Yeah. I feel like too, it's kind of, um, it's portrayed as a good thing in our society. Like, oh, suck it up. Be grateful. You yeah. know what I mean? And yeah. It's, it's hard. Right, those gratitudes. Yeah. 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 Well, and it's, it's hard to differentiate between the two sometimes. I've definitely got the people-pleasing personality in me. So I think sometimes it can be helpful to when, when you are feeling a little bit off to, to think of the positive things. Mm-hmm. But that line of denying your, your negative feelings is sometimes tricky to, to realize that you're doing. Do you find that too? Yeah. So there's something called positive reframing. So basically you take a negative thought and you go like, okay, maybe I failed at something, but it doesn't mean that I'm a failure. Mm-hmm. That's good. Toxic positivity is more like I have to be happy all the time. I have to be perfect. Nobody can think anything is wrong with me. And it basically kind of shoves your feelings um, too far inside of you to feel them. Mm-hmm. And that becomes a problem. It makes you more distressed and disturbed over time with what you're going through. and makes you not really face anything. Um, you know, they say, fake it till you make it. Well, you should face it till you make it. Mm-hmm. I really like mindfulness. And basically, I love to, not that I love, but I, I sit with my emotions and I let them have their say. So if you sit with your emotions, the more you do it, the easier it becomes because it's like a muscle. You have to work it out. Um, 
And basically, whenever you sit with your emotions, you say, okay, what is the messages here that my brain is trying to tell me? And then you comfort yourself with self-compassion with a positive reframing, like, okay, I failed at something, but I'm not a failure, but I, I'm allowed to be upset that I failed. I'm giving that some space and some ability to breathe, but I'm not this emotion. It is not going to consume me. And that is okay. That's a healthy mindset. And that's what really where you should come from. Mm-hmm. I love that you said, you corrected yourself. You said, not that I love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that, is it really difficult at times for, or you said it gets easier, but in the beginning, was it, was it really tough to do that? Yeah. Especially when I was in the psych ward, I was faced with everything, like my whole life traumas, my emotions, because all you had to do all day was think and nothing else. Like you couldn't really do very much. So I was faced with my own thoughts constantly. And I saw negative thinking patterns. Like I always thought that I wasn't good enough. And so I was really perfectionist because of that. And having the stigma about mental illness out there made me also feel not good enough. So I had to really learn to become mindful about my emotions and become the observer and not the judge because, you know, our consciousness is all about awareness. So basically I'm the, I'm aware of being aware. I'm experiencing things and also observing what I'm experiencing. It's kind of cool how that, that we're like that, but we also have to realize that we are not our thoughts and emotions. They are something happening to us that are trying to talk to us and give us information but they are not actually identity. And that's a big distinction to make. Did you ever read the book, The Untethered Soul? No, I've heard it's good though. You, you sound like the whole summary of it. It's like it's <laughs> spot on to what you're talking about. That was the first book yeah. that I read that was like, your thoughts aren't you. And, and right. before that, I had, never, I had never heard that before. Yeah, if you can kind of step back and just observe your thoughts, they you take the power that they have away from you. And that's because you're realizing that life is life. Life is hard. It's allowed to be hard, but your thoughts are trying to help you. You're like you have an inner critic and the inner critic is trying to make you better. Well, a lot of people use that fear motivation to kind of push themselves through things. But if you decide to like have self-compassion and let yourself feel things, you can get through them better. And I think that all of us have like negative thought patterns. Like we can't escape that. That's part of being human, but how we cope with it makes all the difference. And I think if you have self-compassion and mindfulness and realize your thoughts are not you, there's just something happening to you. Um, Cause I, I once heard that anxiety always contains a fear And if you can find that fear, then you can kind of um, deconstruct it. And with all your emotions, you can deconstruct them. That's like journaling helps me with that personally. Like I sometimes think, um, okay, I'm having this feeling or thought, I don't know where it's coming from, but I'll sit down with it. I'll just let it be for a little bit. I don't try to solve it. Whenever you try to solve it, that's whenever you start to try to control it. And you don't have to control your feelings and thoughts. You just have to give them space to exist. And that's really the difference between um, really feeling things as a human being and toxic positivity. Takes the pressure off too. Yeah. Instead of feeling like you need to fix it. Like I woke up on the wrong side of the bed and that's not okay. Like at least I have a house instead of like diminishing your feelings, you sit with them. I, I guess meditation is a way of doing that. When you when you say it, it sounds so clear cut. Like I know your feelings. you have a very beautiful brain, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So 
once you started the medications, you said when you were younger, you were pretty manic, but you were high achieving and you were a perfectionist. Did any of those things go away as well once you, once you started t- getting on medication? Yes. Unfortunately, I became, well, not that unfortunately I became stable, but I became less ambitious to try to like keep going, going and going. That ended up giving me more balance though. So I have more balance now. I don't try to take over the world anymore, even though I am still ambitious. Whenever I was in college, I was an honor student, president of four clubs, two that I had started. And I was always involved in like everything. I thought that I had to sign up for every little thing. And now I'm like, okay, I need me time. I need time to decompress, to relax. And that's a complete different experience of life. And I actually prefer this experience more than the mania. Yeah. Yes, I feel that. (laughs) (laughs) So much I feel that. You're supposed to tell me that today. I don't think you... Cal's getting therapy. I am. I like, seriously, I I said it a little bit ago. Your mind is is very, very beautiful. I like the way it thinks. And that's what makes you such a good writer is because you're very relatable with with the way that you explain things. So I appreciate that a a whole bunch. Um, Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you're writing a memoir too. Yeah. Unseen Brilliance, which now I, such a good title now that I know you. I I have to. (laughs) Wait, tell me the title. What was the title? Unseen Brilliance. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. And I get it. Somebody, yeah. Somebody <laughs> once called me that in high school. I have no idea where it came from. I was like, okay, I'm unseen brilliance. And that kind of made, made me think like our actions are always unseen, like doing good for people is unseen, but it's, but it's brilliant. So the things that you do in life do matter. They have a ripple effect, but you don't always see them. That's kind of where that came from. So what kind of stories are you going to be telling through there without going into too much detail? Yeah, so basically my bipolar journey is the gist of it. So how I got help. It also talks about like my faith a little bit too in God and like how I decided to surrender and create that as my philosophy to get through things. It talks about my trauma, um, the abuse that I've been through and how I really just got through it to kind of use it as a survival guide for anybody else who's ever been through similar things. So good. I can't wait to get it. Did you... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, I, it'll definitely be a very interesting read. I, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, how, so how, what got you into writing? So writing for me has always been therapy. So basically whenever I was in high school, I would just write out my feelings and thoughts and I would just try to find wisdom out of them. And I was always kind of a self-help writer, but I never knew that I was. Um, I liked inspiring people to become better. And I always try to find meaning from my circumstances. I try to find a purpose through them. And one of the main thoughts that I had in high school that got me through the depression I was going through was, I'm going to help others through what I'm going through right now someday. And that's where I really turned to writing was to try to share my story and my message. Mm. Wow. And then, so how did you get that ball rolling? Cause now like you write for so many companies and, and yeah. you do so well, like how, how did that start? I had a lot of time on my hands being on disability <laughs> after the psych ward. Um, yeah. you know, I, I wasn't supposed to work right away. I did try working a couple of times and then I realized that I, I just had to get stable and find the right meds first. And I'm finally on the right meds, but all that time I was like, what do I do with myself? I have nothing to do. I don't have a job. I'm not in school. Um, so I really turned to writing and I, I created my portfolio because of the fact that I was on disability 
it kind of gave put some meaning into my experience you know not having um things to do during the day like a normal person has it gave me um wisdom that i could pull from you know the surrendering thing is really what i took from my experiences being mindful and surrendering because i had no idea that i would ever become stable again i had no idea what was going to happen um so i was really excited to try to show people that there is hope and um even though I couldn't save the people in the mental health institution, I can speak on to how they could help them a little bit better at least. And that's something that I really wanna use my writing for, um, especially in my memoir. I kind of talk about that nurse who said that, who victim blamed me. I talk about my experiences there like I am now. And I kind of try to reveal what's going on, you know, to the world. Yeah, that's that's good work. <laughs> yeah, it's great Very work. Necessary. Yeah. Yeah. You talked that um, you weren't supposed to go back to work right away. Was that something that was discussed prior to you leaving the facility or is that just kind of a general term? Help me understand that a little bit. So I did work under the table nannying because um, when you're on disability, you can't really take a paycheck. So right. I did kind of work, but I basically was like, okay, I'm so lethargic on these meds and gaining all this weight and I wasn't happy. So I knew that I couldn't just jump into a job. I had to get stable. So from that was your choice. That was my choice. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And literally, and like, they don't want you to right off the bat either. They want you to kind of feel your way out, you know, with it for a little bit. I guess that that's what I'm trying to understand. Like, how yeah, it was both. Not right away. So like they want you to eventually get your life back together. But once you leave the psych board and the LTSO, like, okay, you need to like be on disability for a little bit until you know that you can handle things. Okay. So that's their recommendation, but they don't force you to be like, hey, you have to be on disability. Understood. Okay, thank you. Yeah. I was trying to, yeah. trying to understand that. That's, um, so I'm glad you took that time. I think that that's such like crucial time and, and look yeah. what it's allowed you to do I think that that's so good choice that's so cool yeah and it literally took from December 2015 to now to be on the right meds and find the right help so that's how long it took to find the right combination and to find the right people because a lot of people were just inadequate they had bad boundaries they were condescending they didn't listen to me about my um, side effects um, so it was really, really hard. Um, so basically the mental health system for me was just as hard as having mental illness. And that says a lot about, you know, that experience. It does. it does. What is some of the, obviously you've had time to think about these things, right? <laughs> what, what would you like to see kind of that process be reformed into? Um, I think it needs just more soul. So um, I, I like the gentle barn, they're an animal rescue organization and they do like Reiki, animal healing or energy healing, acupuncture, massages, almost like a spa type experience for their animals. And they do like sound baths and just really cool stuff. It's kind of not just um, Western medicine, but they incorporate some other like therapies into it. And I was watching one of their videos one day of them like playing violin for their donkeys, which is really cute. And I was like, oh my God, they're being treated better than I was in the psych ward. And I realized oh, nice. that that's something that really needs to be done is it needs to be treated like, um, like more of a retreat than a, than a hospital, more like a place that you can be, have a safe space and to be unwell and, and to be comfortable. And like the beds weren't comfortable. The, the rooms were all white and there was nothing, no decoration, no hominess to it. It really felt like a hospital. I don't think that it should feel so 
uh, devoid of emotion and warmth and comfort and love. I think that people need to come in and talk to the people who are, who are on disability and in the psych ward and give them comfort and hope, not like a priest, but kind of like a priest, give them some emotional reassurance. Connection. Nurse, yeah. 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 I think the nurses did a really bad job with that, but the nurses are kind of the only people doing that. And I think that needs to change. There needs to be some more connection made with the patients. And yes, you can't reach all the patients. They're all in psychosis, but you can give them a better life um, and some more meaning by giving them some more connection with yourself and discomfort. You know, they deserve to have that. And I don't think it's right that they don't. Yeah, that common thread of humanity is missing. Yeah. Sure. In, in, one of your, um, in one of your blogs, you talked about a, a self-soothe kit and coping ahead. Oh, yeah. I, I thought that was brilliant. Can, can you, you go into that a little bit? Yeah. So basically, a self-soothe kit is anything that makes you feel good, happy, nostalgic. And it's kind of something that you plan ahead for whenever you do feel bad. So if you want to create like a playlist of happy songs or songs that make you feel better, you would have this, you know, on hand for whenever you're feeling depressed as a coping mechanism. You can have like a scrapbook of photos of good times that you've been through. Um, you can have like aromatherapy candles. Um, you can take a bath and just, you know, soak in the bathtub as your care, self-care. It's, it can look anything you want it to look like as long as it's unique to you and something that you can do to comfort yourself. Because a lot of times we're taught that we have to just grind through our problems and our emotions and self-care is so important that we don't realize that we need to take like a time, some time for ourselves and just having that mentality. You don't always have to just wait to break down to have that self-care. You need to have it constantly. Like I listen to uh, meditations every day to kind of keep myself motivated. You know, it's something that you need to keep recharging yourself with daily and you can use it for whenever you do break down. Mm -hmm. So what's in yours? So mine is a lot of like candles and um, lotion, like a little like pampering. So I like doing like face masks. I like do my nails. Like mine's more like beauty oriented because mm -hmm. I like to kind of pamper myself. And I also listen to really good music. So the music that I have playing, I love Friends by Justin Bieber. I'm a big Justin Bieber fan. I like <laughs> listen to silly things that like, yeah, it's a little embarrassing. The music, like I listen to like Celine Dion, Titanic. I'm like, I'm not Hey girl. <laughs> you <know? laughs> no, I've got an deal. eclectic record collection. I did <laughs> yeah, that. So I think that's it's, awesome. It's kind of it's so stuff that I wouldn't really want to share with other people, but I'm like, you know what? This is my music. I'm in my this mode. This is me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Leanne, what would be in yours? Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, you introduced me to CBD bath bombs. That would be in mine for <laughs> sure. <laughs> Whatever current book I'm reading and probably some peanut butter slash snacks of some kind. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Cal? Music always. Music and paint and my bathtub for sure. Yeah. And, and, and obviously coffee. a pen and paper that, that yeah, yeah. helps me with yeah. everything. <laughs> Yeah, same here. Yeah. Were you always a writer from like the time you were a young kid? I would always like make up stories in my head. I'm a, I'm like an artist, so I like to draw mm -hmm. and I like to make, I, whenever I even played Barbies as a kid, I would make up stories and storylines. Oh my gosh, thoughts. I was designing their houses. That's all I like to do. <laughs> I just yeah. like to design the Barbie house. I never really played with yeah, that. Yeah, I loved all of that. So that kind of stayed with me. You know, I became just, I liked creating characters. Like I love the Sims games where you create yeah. characters. Yes. Like, I was always into like creating stories. So yeah. 
Um, but the wisdom stuff really coming up with like self-help topics came in high school whenever I was like, okay, I'm going to help other people one day through mm -hmm. this. But I've always like wanted to share my own story and my struggles. So that's kind of where that came from. What part of that process scares you? Because when you're diving into something as big as bipolar and mental health, you know, and with all the stigma around it, plus your own experience, I mean, that's a vulnerability on a whole nother level. Um, what part of you, what part scares you and what part gets you really excited? What part scares me is the weakness aspect of it, that I wasn't strong enough to not need meds to take, I wasn't strong enough to take care of myself. I wasn't strong enough to have a job and stay consistent as like adulting. Other people think, think less of me as what I was afraid of. Mm -hmm. You know, I was afraid mm -hmm. that having a mental illness made me less than, and that's something that I've overcome luckily. But at the beginning, I was like, I don't want to tell anybody that I'm bipolar or that I went to the psych ward. Um, you know, because I didn't have a smartphone, I was off social media for months and months and months. And people had no idea what, where I went or what happened. And that was what's scary for me is to finally tell them. Um, and the thing that excites me though is common humanity. I'm not the only one going through this. I can help other people going through it too. The human experience is full of bittersweet experiences. And I think that I can relate to other people and they can relate to me, whether you have bipolar or not, mm -hmm. if you have ever struggled in life, you can definitely relate to my situations and get, get the help that you need once you realize that you need that help. Yeah, 100%. You had a quote, you said, to be human is to be flawed, but therein lies the strength. Yeah. That was glorious. Thank you. <laughs> Leanne's tattooed it to her arm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's right here. <laughs> there is such beauty in that strength, though. There really, really yeah. is. Um, we, we've talked about a lot of different things and, and we've, we've talked about what you would want the experience to look like for the patient um, being put into those different facilities and different wings of the hospital. Um, what I, I'm trying to think of how I want to word this. Outside of the patient as a system and the people that either vote these people in or however it's going to work, you know what I mean? What support yeah. can other people do have you thought about that, of, of how the support you need outside of just like your own personal care in, in the facilities, maybe from like friends and things? Um, from friends and from people who know me, I think that it was important for them to realize that I didn't have all the answers about bipolar. I didn't know what was happening to me um, and that that's okay for them not to be experts as well. I'm not expecting anybody to be like, okay, I read all these books on bipolar. I know how to handle you, Sarah. I'm not their mentor either. Like I don't, I don't, I'm not yes. the face of all bipolar. I'm just yeah. one experience. So I think that openness, and I think that there needs to be more education in our school systems about mental health and knowing like when you're falling apart, what things look like so that we don't judge each other for those experiences because I think there's a lot of judgment involved and whenever you have that stigma about having mental illness um, it makes you feel like less than other people and that's not the case at all you are experiencing this but you are not this and I think that's a common uh, thing that people are afraid people are going to associate them with mental illness that that's all that they are and I'm way more than my bipolar disorder yeah mm, preach <laughs> wow. we, uh, we had a guest on um in the beginning of this season, Frank King, and he had a lot of suicidal ideations. Mm -hmm. And 
he did a TED talk and he reframed it in a way that because he has come so close so many times in his life and, and has thought about it so many times, he uses it as a superpower, like he has nothing to lose. So it's almost gives him a sense of bravery. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like your diagnosis has given, given you any positive, positive attributions as well? Um, I think it's calmed me down about my self-image because I was Mm. so much about my approval from other people that having bipolar, being imperfect at all has taught me that I can be happy no matter what's happening to me. So Mm. basically, whenever I was in the psych board, you know, I thought that I had to perform stability. Like I thought that I needed to show them that I wasn't crazy to get out of there. And now I'm realizing that bipolar was a gift and allowing me to share that I was suffering and share to other people that I'm going through something but do I want bipolar do I want other people to have bipolar no like it's there's not really much good that comes out of being delusional but I can make it good and how I cope with it and tell other people about my story god I love that what a story it is you have such a positive outlook oh my gosh I know can we clone (laughs) you and put you in our pocket because my goodness such such a gift well we don't want to keep you away from your writing for too long but we had such a good time (laughs) hanging out with you because I want you to get back to work and give us more things to read and and to relate to It's, (laughs) it's been awesome yeah thank you so much I really enjoyed this absolutely real quick where can people find you uh, the first place to go to is my website, sarahjeanbrown.com. I'm very active on Twitter. So it's at Sarah J. Brown, S-A-R-A-H-J, then Brown with an E at the end. You can find me there, connect with me, tell me how you feel about this podcast and go from there. Amazing. That's awesome, Amazing. Sarah. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for your time. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, we invite you to come be a part of the HTC community. Find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching at Have the Combo and click around on our links to find ways that you can get involved. Talk soon.